Hey, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to New Day. Everybody in the room, hello. Everybody who's tuning in on the live stream, welcome. We're so glad that, uh, that you're joining us today. And we are in the middle of a series that is called Things Are Going to Be Different. And that really has three different meanings. We know that things are going to be different in the world, that change is happening at an exponential rate. One of the changes that we can measure, that we can see the numbers for, is that even though in Marathon County, where we are right now, uh, over the last 20 years, there have been seven additional churches, a net gain of seven churches, there are 20,000 fewer people attending any church. Uh, in, in my lifetime, we've gone from a, a over 75% of the people in this county connected to some church to now under 50% of, uh, of people in this county. So things are changing in that way. And the expectation is that not all of those people are going to come back to church as they knew it. So one of the things that's different is the world is going to be different. It keeps changing. And because of that, the church needs to be different. We need to be thinking about how are we going to reach into that population of tens of thousands of people who aren't coming back to church. How can we reach them with the gospel and be the church where they are? And in order to do that, we need to be transformed people. We need to unlearn some of what we've learned. We need to learn new things. We need to be transformed, not just in our information, but uh, uh, in internal, inside-out transformation. So things are going to be different in the world. Things need to be different in the church. And in order for that to happen, things are going to be different within us. That's what Jesus wants to do in us anyway. So I encourage you, invite your friends to come be a, a, a part of this series, whether it's uh, in this room or, or online. And uh, one, one more thing I want to bring up before we dive into today's teaching, uh, the Kenya update. We'd like to pour out blessings on our friends, our ministry partners in northern Kenya again. So uh, we're looking at a potential uh, late January trip there, and we're in communication with uh, our, our friends there about what are the greatest needs, what can we do when we go, and we'll be uh, doing a, a fundraiser to help that happen and to be a blessing to them. Um, I'm, not I'm not sure about this, so don't quote me on this, but I think, I think what might end up happening, based on the conversations we've had, we may be helping set up it's okay if I say this, right, Jacqueline? We may be helping to, to set up a, a structure, a center for gathering in the region that we've been ministering to uh, because right now uh, it's, it, it's just really difficult for a lot of the people to get to their main uh, leadership uh, development institute. So we, we may be putting up like a simple structure and then going and doing some, uh, do, like doing some theological training, or um, at, at least going and, and praying and, and, and doing some encouragement. I'm not sure about that yet, but that's 
that's what we're thinking. So uh, there'll be a Christmas gift opportunity. So plan that in your Christmas budget. And before we hear God's word together, let's pray. God, we thank you for the time that we have to gather, for the space that we have to do that in. And I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to learn from you, to hear from your word, not just information. We invite you, Lord, to do your transformation in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Our key text today is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. And we're going to go through a couple of different things. And what we want to learn and, and understand is that uh, a church has a group identity, and a church's group identity really needs to come from Jesus, from the character of Jesus, his, uh, uh, how he is through and through, inside and out, is how the church should be through and through, inside and out. So it's how we should be inside and out. And it's not something that's going to happen instantly. It's a process. And part of that process is being in a group that's committed to that character transformation. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, we read Paul the Apostle giving some clues about what that character looks like. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Two of my uh, kids were on the school curling team. Anybody in here a curler? Any curlers? Got not a huge crowd of curlers in here. It's, uh, uh, it's taken off, folks. Um, <laughs> there, of course, there are rules that you have to learn in the game of curling, and it took us, Michelle and I, a while as spectators to figure out how, what, what are they doing? Why are they doing it that way? How can, are they keeping track of score? There are also unwritten rules that are sometimes referred to as the spirit of curling. These are guidelines that aren't, aren't like scoring points or what constitutes a foul. They're, they're cultural guidelines. So for instance, in curling, you don't leave the ice without having uh, shaken the hand of your opponent and even learned their name, especially the person who's uh, in the same position you're in on the opposing team. You never leave the ice without shaking hands. And curlers don't talk or move around in a way that would be distracting during their opponent's turn. And you call your own fouls because a curler would rather lose than win in an unfair, dishonest way. You don't cheer when an opponent misses a shot and you don't show uh, uh, any sort of discouragement when someone on your own team misses a shot. Always encouraging. And then 
After the game, the winner offers uh, to buy a drink for their opponent who played in the same position, and the loser reciprocates by offering to buy the second drink. Now, this wasn't part of the high school culture. It's uh, something you, that you build up to um, uh, and they're taught to curlers even at a high school level because they're cultivating a group identity. If you're going to be a curler, this is what it looks like. This is who we are. Now, <laughs> incidentally, Michelle and I were yesterday at the homecoming game for Carroll University where my daughter plays um, not on the football team but in the band. And... Um, uh, very different culture in football where you want to be uh, distracting. You want to be uh, uh, pounding your opponent and you want to scream for them to do poorly. It was, uh, it was like 42 to 7 at the half and the announcer is saying that the opponent, it's third down and 20 yards to go. It's 42 to 7. And the announcer is saying, so come on, make some noise. Like, we, we really want them to mess this up. Very different from curling, okay? And my kids, when we started as spectators in curling, we weren't used to the curling culture. So they, every once in a while, would have to say to us, no, 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 don't cheer. Don't cheer for them missing their, their shot. Because they had become a part of that group. They were identifying with that group identity. Group identity is part of what forms our character. Uh, neurologists tell us that in human development at about age 12, our brain starts restructuring to balance out individual identity with group identity. When I think about turning 12, that kind of makes sense. That's when you start wondering, which group do I fit in? What does it mean to be a part of this group or a part of this group? Will I be accepted here? What do I need to do? Kind of what are the unwritten rules? So we sort out where we belong, who we belong with, and what it means to be a part of that group. Now, it's said that you can judge a person's character by the company they keep. I think neurologists would say you can also turn that around and say that the company you keep can shape your character. So what kind of company should disciples of Jesus be to each other? What are some of the characteristics of our group identity? Well, ultimately, the church should reflect the character of Christ. So the easy question to what should the church look like is the classic Sunday school answer. It should look like Jesus, right? Um, so we get clues about what the church should look like from what Jesus taught and the example that he set. And one of the big places that he teaches, uh, a kind of a uh, uh, his model for what things are going to look like is in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. One long teaching. And we've had these instructions for over 2,000 years, and it still feels backward to us when we look at it. For instance, what do we tend to think of? If we hear the word or use the word blessed, what do we tend to think of? We tend to think of someone who's prosperous in some way, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus 
calls a, a different kind of uh, thinking around the idea of blessed. Who's blessed? Not the rich, but the poor in spirit. Who's blessed? Not the ones who experience miraculous healing, but the ones who mourn. Who's blessed? Not the celebrities, but the humble. Not the people who are comfortable in their freedom, but those who feel unsettled by injustice. Not those who win arguments, but those who make peace. And not those who are safe and secure, but those who are persecuted for doing what is right. 2,000 years we've had these instructions, and it still seems upside down to us. And that's just the first few verses. Then Jesus says some guidelines that we can agree with fairly easily. Do not murder. Okay. Yeah, that, yeah that, that tracks. That makes sense. And then he goes on to say, if you're angry with someone, you're guilty of murder. Whoa. Don't commit adultery. Okay. I'm on board with that. If you look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery. And if you're feeling judged by me saying any of this, please know that I'm not judging you because according to Jesus, if I were judging you, that would be like uh, uh, an eye surgeon trying to do eye surgery on you, but they're blindfolded. Don't judge other people is what Jesus says. He says, don't worry about what you'll wear, what you'll eat, where you'll live. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and he'll provide everything you need. How are we doing with this one, church? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, yeah, but what about when someone attacks us? Jesus says, turn the other cheek. What about when someone steals from us? Jesus says, give them more. What about when someone accuses us of something that we didn't do or who treats us unfairly because of who we are or where we're from or what we believe? What if their way of life is a threat to our way of life? Do we then throw the teachings and the example of Jesus out the window? That does happen. Russell Moore a guy who was the, uh, he's the former dean of theology at Southern Baptist Theolog Theological Seminary. He's the former president of public policy uh, at the Southern Baptist Convention, said in an interview recently, this is Russell Moore, multiple pastors tell me essentially the same story about quoting the Sermon on the Mount, parenthetically in their preaching, turn the other cheek, and have someone come up after and say, where did you get those liberal talking points? When the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus, the response would be, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. Moore says, when we get to the point where the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive to us, then we are in a crisis. He's talking about the crisis of the church untethering our group identity from the attitudes, the actions, the teachings of Jesus Christ. When I went on a two-month sabbatical in 2021, I was feeling pretty beat up. I don't know if you guys remember 2020. Um, it didn't necessarily get better 
in the first half of 2021. Before that time, I thought I'd done a good job in the early years of the church establishing parts of our group identity, that we would be a church where the bumper stickers in the parking lot don't match, meaning you could be affiliated with whatever political party supporting whatever political candidate, and when we came together, we would be united in Christ. After all, Jesus had among his 12 disciples Matthew, the tax collector, who would gather up money from the Jewish people in order to fund their occupying oppressors. And he had Simon the Zealot, someone whose background was killing the occupying oppressors. How is it that we never hear Jesus weighing in on these two very different political positions within his own group of 12? It's because he had an agenda that was bigger than national or political affiliation. He was initiating the salvation of people from all nations, all people groups. I thought I had taught that really well. Uh, Still, I had people tell me that they were leaving New Day because I wasn't speaking out against Black Lives Matter. And I had people tell me that they were leaving because I wasn't speaking out against Franklin Graham. Some, some of you are going, like, why would you speak out again? I don't, that's just what they said. Like, I don't. And I learned that political parties, social action groups, media outlets were doing a lot better job of establishing group identity than I was. Granted, I, I basically get a, an hour a week, and uh, some people are, are kind of on an intravenous news feed, reassuring them that you're surrounded by enemies, you have every right to be angry, and it's okay to hate those people because they're evil and stupid and hardly people at all. So I came out of that sabbatical, those couple of months to kind of reflect on Uh, what we had been through as a church, what I had been through as a pastor, what we were going through as a nation. And one key word rose above everything else in all of my reflections. One key word, something that's an absolute must as part of our group identity. And that key word, it's like the answer to all of my frustrations. If we could get this one key word locked in, the church would really look and act different from the world around us. Without this one thing, we're doomed, not just organizationally, but spiritually doomed. Hundreds of years ago, theologians called this one thing the mother of all virtues. Before I give it a name, let's look at how Jesus taught about it. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Now, by the way, we all tend to have confidence in our own righteousness while scorning everyone else. If you don't believe me, just a kind of a mundane example is when you're speeding... It's because 
you have a good reason. You have circumstances that really nobody around you knows, but surely they would be understanding and they would have some grace with you. After all, you're a really good driver, especially compared to some of the other drivers on the road. That's when you're speeding. When someone else speeds past you, they're obviously being very reckless and you hope they get pulled over. So when the text says that Jesus told this story to people who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else, it could just say, Jesus told this story to people. People like you and me. Here's the story, verse 10 and following. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. By the way, in case you missed it, Rachel pointed out that there's a black box by the exit right there. That's where offering goes, and uh, you can also give online and set up a regular pattern of, uh, of giving. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance, dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, does Jesus say in this passage, I tell you, this tax collector isn't such a bad guy once you get to know him. No, the tax collector is a sinner, period. Yet he went home justified before God, meaning he was set right, made righteous. Was the Pharisee also a sinner? Yes. Paul the Apostle points out in his letter to the church in Rome, he says, everyone has sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. John the apostle said, if any of us says we're without sin, we're lying to ourselves. The Pharisee justified himself, and he did good religious things. But in all of his self-righteousness, the Pharisee was not made righteous in God's eyes. What was the difference? This is the key word, the one thing, the mother of all virtues, humility. He was humble. So as I think about group identity and the effect that it has on our inner character, I pray that we would be a people whose identity would be rooted in humility before a holy God. 
There are lots of characteristics that I'd like to see in the group identity of this church, but none of them really matters if we're not humble. God actually opposes the proud. Unless we humble ourselves, we can't genuinely confess our sinful condition and be forgiven. Unless we humble ourselves, we can't give up our lives for the sake of Jesus, submit to him as Lord. That's what it means to be a believer, a disciple, a Christian. We cannot get there apart from humility. Unless we humble ourselves, we can't have the character of Jesus who descended from his heavenly throne who humbled himself to be born as a human being on this earth in order to save us. He came not to be served, but to serve others. He washed his disciples' feet and told them to go and do likewise. Without humility, we won't receive correction. So everything we say about transformation and character development doesn't matter unless we're humble pride walks into a room and says here i am humility walks into a room and says there you are now we could do a whole series going through the warnings about pride in scripture and it would take us at least a year by the way humility is about more than admitting you're a sinner? It sounds like a real downer when we just think of it that way. Uh, It's been said that humility isn't primarily thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's believing that other people are valuable and that they have worthwhile stories and then showing a genuine interest in who they are. What a relief when we can stop thinking about how we'll make ourselves look good and instead think about how we can discover someone else's story. Humility is freedom from pride and arrogance. The word humility itself is related to the word humor and the word humanity. They're all rooted in this Latin word humus. It's about being down to earth. I want to be someone who gets better and better at laughing at myself. Even my weaknesses and mistakes and shortcomings. I want to be part of a church of people who are getting better at laughing at themselves. Humility is related to humor. I want people to walk in and see that this is not a group of people trying to advance their personal agendas. Trying to carry their political banners. I want New Day to be a group characterized by humility. Kind of how my kids became part of the curling group, and they learned that curlers are not people who celebrate when their opponents fail. I want New Day to be people who genuinely love and pray for those who seem to oppose us the way Jesus taught us. My kids learned in curling not to get down on someone when they fail, but to focus on encouraging and coaching towards improvement, shouldn't the church be people who aren't afraid to fail, 
sometimes who call our own fouls because we know that we're surrounded by other people who are open about their failures and thankful for God's grace and mercy. I'm excited to be part of a group of misfits and outsiders who know for certain that our only hope is Jesus. If that's you, you're in the right place. So understand, Paul the Apostle wasn't giving us a new law to follow from that key passage that we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. It wasn't a new list of commandments that if we just do these things, then we'll be righteous in front of God. He was telling us that the church is a gathering of people who get their group identity from the character qualities of Jesus Christ. When we look at that again, I want you to think about that. What if this characterized us? What if this was our group identity, at least part of it? Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. I don't know about you, but this teaching is challenging to me. I don't know what God is teaching you today through this. We're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on that because sitting here and listening to me is, uh, you know, the most important thing is not that you learn what God taught me. The most important thing is that you learn something from God. We believe that he is alive and active in people's lives today. So we're going to give you just a couple of minutes here to reflect and to ask the question to God silently to yourself, God, what are you teaching me today? And then to consider your response. What am I willing to do about it? Because transformation doesn't just happen when we take in information. It happens when we hear from God and when we obey what he says. That's part of what's a little different about how we're doing things. So we're going to give you a few minutes. This is a gift. A few minutes to quietly reflect on what God is teaching you and what you're willing to do about it. I encourage you, write down something. Write a note because then we're going to have a few minutes where you have the opportunity to uh, discuss with the people at your table what you feel like God is teaching you and what you're willing to do about it. Because this is about community. We don't transform as individuals. Uh, God put us together for a reason. So we're going to play some music, have a chance for reflection. Uh, if you're participating online, we encourage you, put some notes in the chat about what God is teaching you and what you're willing to do about it, what stood out to you. And we've got Rachel keeping track of what's happening in the chat so she can share with the room uh, what, what you share uh, with us. And stay tuned to the chat uh, so that you can hear uh, a highlight 
uh, from what's been happening in this room. Let's go into those couple of minutes of quiet reflection. Right now we're going to give you uh, a few minutes, about the same amount of time, uh, just to share with people uh, who are at your table here or if you're uh, in the live stream, people who are in the room with you, um, people who you already know and have some level of comfort with, I hope, <laughs> um, and, and just share a uh, 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 a highlight of what God is teaching you, what you're willing to do about it. I, we're really practicing um, starting that kind of a statement with the two words, I will. Because it can become tempting to say, I liked when he said. And what we want to move towards is, okay, but what are you willing to do when you hear from God? So that's uh, my encouragement to you as you go into this time of, uh, of, of discussion and sharing. And um, after this time of discussion, uh, we'll uh, break and um, we'll catch up with people next week where we're going to continue looking into, okay, now that we've talked about a group identity, what about when we feel out of alignment with the group or we see something happening 
where we go, well, that, I don't think that's uh, how we operate here. What does correction look like? It's a biggie. So I'm excited about uh, catching up with you all next week, whether in this room or online. Uh, so enjoy your discussion together, and, uh, and we'll catch up soon.